for her was like, it's gonna happen. Breathe. One, two, three. One, two, three. And then the baby was like oriented wrong in the whole bit. So I learned, I learned way too much about what happened. I'm flashing back to the year I spent reading James Harriet novels. Mm. Um, yeah. Neither of you, neither of you, all creatures great and small. Yeah, I, I owned all of them and I never read them because I didn't want to. I went for exactly the reason. They are they are so British and they involve so many descriptions of birth. <laughs> Not human. <laughs> mostly. Well, I mean those are two really big selling points, you know, when you're when I'm when I'm describing a book to my friends, you know, they're like, "Well, what well, what's great about it?" And I'm like, "Well, one most books no graphic descriptions of birth." And two, yes. British. It's the book club at the end of the universe. I'm Jeremy Yoder, and welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Colin Carlson, and it is so nice to be back. Uh, sorry we've been gone. Like Panic at the Disco, we've been busy writing some new stuff for you. Uh, it's, it's good to be home. And I'm Fausto Bustos. I was 25 minutes late to this call, and Colin refused to write me a super interesting intro, and he won't let me go off script today. That's right. You're, you're on probation. This is episode three. We've arrived at another of those doors. So where did we leave off, Jeremy? Uh, okay, so today we're talking about chapters 8 to 18 of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, when last we saw our heroes, Ford and Arthur, they had been ejected into space, but they've now been rescued by the Heart of Gold, a highly advanced spaceship uh, powered by the infinite probability drive and recently stolen, as we found out finally, by Zaphod Beeblebrox and his companion Trillian. Ford and Arthur experience the very surreal side effects of traveling on the uh, an improbability drive-powered starship, and then they uh, recover as the drive winds down, and they're shown up to the bridge by Marvin, a manically depressed robot. I don't think that's an actual diagnosis, uh, but a robot who was built with a genuine people personality, which is not very not a very good one. It's better than most people I know. Uh, it's about it's about par for the course for me. Uh, so they get to the bridge, and Ford turns out uh, Ford realizes that the the ship has been stolen by Zaphod, who is not just the president of the galaxy; he's also Ford's semi cousin. Arthur realizes that he in fact knows Trillian because uh, they met at a party uh, some time ago, and he was trying to chat her up. And then this stranger, who turns out to be have been Zaphod Beeblebrox. Uh, walks up and says, hey, babe, why don't you talk to me? I'm from another planet. Uh, and she does. As we all would. As we all would. And that evening precipitates Trillian leaving the planet with, with Zaphod because she has a degree in maths and another in astrophysics, and so obviously her job prospects are shit. And who wouldn't want to go exploring the universe with a man who turns out to have two heads and three arms? Three arms, 15 fingers. Presumably 15, yeah. <laughs> Maybe more. <laughs> it's uh, The count is never given. So, the reason that Zaphod has stolen the infinite improbability drive, which is powered by somehow manipulating the laws of probability, which we will get into, maybe, um, is that he's looking for the planet Magrathea, which is 
contains the remains of a civilization that used to build planets um, and presumably contains a great deal of accumulated wealth. Uh, it's also important to note that we don't know why he's doing that. It's just important to him. It's well, just... it's it's maybe the fame, it's maybe the fortune. Um, yes. He yeah, seems to suggest both. They enter orbit of Magrathia, and the planet broadcasts a recording at them that is more or less a more or less a voicemail message saying we've we've gone away for a couple millennia, don't come back. And then when they continue to to or they stay in orbit, automated defense systems launch a couple of missiles at them. They are imminently doomed until Arthur has the presence of mind to turn on the infinite improbability drive, which transforms the two missiles into respectively a a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias, and this renders them no longer a threat. And that brings us to the end of chapter 18. We're, we're going to see if uh, maybe bigger chunks make it a little easier to do this. Lord knows our, our collective lives have not been conducive to sitting down and podcasting in a regular fashion. Since since last we recorded, not that time has any meaning because we're releasing these pretty much as we have as we get around to them. I started teaching for the first time. Colin moved across the country. Yeah, I moved 3000 miles. Put all um, my shit in 13 FedEx boxes. And I don't know what the hell is wrong with Fausto. He he Yeah, Fausto doesn't became flakier. He's just or a, stayed just exactly as flaky as he was. He's the, latter diag- the latter diagnosis is correct. He's always been terrible. Mm-hmm. This is a chapter, or this is a series of chapters where it turns out that basically the whole plot of this novel hinges on coincidence. Um, the mechanics of the infinite improbability driver are a little mysterious, but uh, Ford and Arthur were rescued from from death in the vacuum of space at a very while the drive was running at a very specific improbability level. And so, in order to make sense of this, Zaphod asks the compute the ship's computer to total up the probability of the thing occurring to see whether it it accords with their having been rescued under these conditions. And what it works at, what works what finally works it out is. The accumulated fact of the high, the tiny probability of being rescued when you're floating in the vacuum of space, because space is really big, the probability that they that you're rescued by your semi cousin Zaphod Beeblebrox, the president of the galaxy, and then all of the improbability associated with Trillian being being connected to both Zaphod and Arthur, and something about the phone number of the flat where the party took place. Uh, this is as good or bad a time as any to just ask: Do we believe in coincidence? So, I would contend to you that uh, coincidences are not only real, but an incredibly important part of how the universe works and tells us things. Tells us things. actually insane. Substantiate your thesis. So, here's my take. Ready? All right. So, I've been alternatingly religious or not at various times in my life, um, which is a non-answer to whether I currently am. And... Uh, my perspective is that the universe has an eigenvector and an eigenvalue and is moving in a given direction at a given time, even though it is a complex system. Uh, my take is that coincidences are very often a wonderful way of reminding us where the system is moving and where we are in it and where we're headed. Uh, the other day, so I, I've started a new job in the time since we last made this podcast. Uh, the t- t- 
two months of uh we're gonna call it two months and we're gonna act like we didn't try to record in that time and fall apart while we did (laughs) um not us we are one take podcasters right um so so in the two months i started this new job and uh I'm I'm from a very small town in Connecticut, so I, I haven't I haven't been home in several years. I've been in California. I've moved back to DC. Um, I'm in the office one day, and and one of my coworkers comes into my office and he says, "Hey, I have this really talented undergrad. I I want you to meet him." Um, so he brings him in. He says, "So actually, the the reason I wanted you guys to meet is just it's just a funny passing thing. You know, he's from Connecticut." And I say, "Oh, where are you from?" And uh, he was from my hometown which has never happened to me before in my life. Um, it's a coincidence. It's a small one. It's a random one. But at a time in my life when I'm, when I'm thinking about the idea of being home, thinking about the idea of returning to a place that I have been avoiding for several years, um, I, you know what? I'm going to be honest. It felt a little heavy-handed. It's like, yeah, bitch, we get it. So, Making- so, so you're saying that the eigenvector of the universe is pointing toward Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah, maybe. Is that more or less depressing than the universe eventually turning into a cold, shrunken shadow of its former glory? Uh, they're the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I forgot that white heaven is bleak. I'm sorry. It's, uh... It's more of it's not so much a white heaven thing as much as like a sort of white twin peaks ish sort of thing. That's redundant. <laughs> Remember, they turned the only Asian person into a doorknob. I'm still not over that. They did do that. What? They did do that. that does canonically happen in the original Twin Peaks run. Fausto's really mad about it. Yes, Josie gets turned into a doorknob, and I'm very unhappy to this day about this. In the but original series? Yes, Jeremy. So so Bob shows up. And scares Josie, and she dies, right? But here's the thing. The last scene of that episode, sorry if this is a spoiler, just you know, put your fingers in your ears for the next 30 seconds and um, sing the national anthem. Um, so after Josie dies, the last scene in the episode, it zooms in on a doorknob, and then her warped face comes out of the doorknob, and she's, like, screaming, and, she, and it's never addressed, and it's never explained. Wow, Jenny I had forgotten that. Up. I've only seen the last half of the second season, like, once. That's, all, that's the number of times you need to see it. Maybe even too many. Is, is she, like, doomed? Is she doomed to haunt the doorknob? Because that seems like a really bad ghost situation. So... My understanding is that this is addressed in the new series, which you wouldn't let me finish on your Showtime account. So I would we'll not. never know. We never will. What about you, Jeremy? Do you believe in coincidences? I do not. And I'm, I'm going to take this position because the original version of this prompt was just to give an example of a coincidence that we had recently, that we had experienced, or the, uh, the biggest coincidence we could remember, even. And... I could not, for the life of me, come up with something that was either interesting or genuinely coincidental, because there's always uh, some underlying reason why, for example, I meet people who know people in common with me, generally because we're, we're all gay men who are, who are living in a single metropolitan area. But even prior to that, it was because we were all Mennonites in, in, uh, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Yeah, a thriving metropolis full of gay men. 
Well, um, so the the real low degree small network is gay Mennonites in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Faster, do you believe in coincidences? I am sort of agreeing with Jeremy on this one. So, boo, I have, boo you. I have I been have trying to think of an interesting coincidence that doesn't rely on. I don't know. Happenstance? I don't know if that even makes sense. What a crazy random happenstance. I know, right? Coincidence that doesn't rely on happenstance sounds a little... Is it tautological? To a degree. It's the opposite of tautological. It's like (laughs) the thing that is not itself. Self-exclusionary set theory. Yeah. Something like that. So, okay. So I was bothered by this question enough that I went looking up the formal definition, and I'll read it here. A remarkable occurrence of events or circumstances without apparent causal connection. And it's that latter part without apparent causal connection that really, I don't know, it threw me for a loop. Um, because all of this came about, right, in thinking about this imp- this uh, improbability drive. But even there, there was a reason that things happened, and that's because they were not supposed to happen or they were at least highly improbable so i don't i don't know can i share a counterpoint yes mm-hmm. so if you, so this is going to be a long story but this is also um my attempt to absolutely own you on this point um so so my contention would be that something can have an underlying causality but if you don't know it it's a coincidence so we don't have a concept of the grand eigenvector of the universe. We don't know the tendency of the system. But things are happening. They're weird. They're unexplained. Something sets them in motion. But maybe we don't know. I'd like to give three examples. This is a collection of short stories called I Have Known Every Single Person That Fausto Knows at Some Previous Point. <laughs> Jeremy has heard this story in <laughs> that we've done over the last two months. Case study number one. Number one. Fausto's best friend, Charlie. Now I say best friend with a little bit of contempt because only every now and then does Fausto acknowledge that I am, in fact, his bestest friend. (laughs) So Charlie and I went to Yukon together, which we found out one day over Facebook because he posted a picture next to a parking garage. To be clear, the University of Connecticut, not the Canadian Territory. Not the Canadian territory that we all grew up in together, all three of us, the hosts of this podcast. Right. Um, gay Mennonites from the Yukon Territory. That's the name of this podcast. So um, Charlie and I knew each other from way back, and we had no idea. And I texted Fausto, and I said, hey, are you, are you aware of this thing? And he said, yeah, I've known for a year. I wanted to see how long it took you to figure it out, which is to date the most mad I've ever been at a person. (laughs) Case study number two. One day, Fausto and I are trying to order a pizza. And it's about one in the morning, I'd say. I don't remember the story. Oh, yes, you do, bitch. So I'm trying to order a pizza. And uh, he's telling me about this, this date he went on. And, uh, you know, this this date went on a little wandering through campus. It actually passed through my building where I work. And I was like, oh, who is it with? He's like, hang on, I'll pull up a picture. And as I was on the phone trying to order the pizza, he shows me a picture of one of my friends from, from my apartment. 
who he had no idea I knew. Um, and I was so incoherent with rage that I had to hang up the phone call because I lost the ability to speak. Case study number three. <laughs> Wait, I remember this story now. It was really funny. It was great. <laughs> it continues to be great. Uh, case study number three is that I know Fausto's current roommate, who he found through some weird indirect set of connections. From I've when I've seen, I've known her for ten whole years because we, she, and I were in the same dorm together. I've known her for eleven years because she and I won the Nestle Very Best in Youth Award and partied with Ken Bentley, and it was. It was weird. It was very... It was, and uh, Jerry Rice, the football player, was at that party. I recognize that that doesn't seem like a true story, but it is. Um, anyway, all that to say, if we take these things in whole and we look at them... Two out of three of them are the gay men thing. Uh, either. I would contend that two things emerge. First... Fausto's a really terrible friend. <laughs> He's an absolute fucking twit. Second, <laughs> there's there's a pattern. There's a weird, unexplained pattern where Fausto and I, I would contend to you, if we hadn't met the way we did, we would have met at least three other ways in the short time that we were at Berkeley together. The universe wanted me and Fausto to start a podcast. It's Manifest Destiny. Hmm. I think all this might mean is that I am a central and powerful node within a social structure in which you are a vestigial node near my node. <laughs> Peripheral, and I think you mean. As a result of that, you are in proximity to very important people in and around my life. Maybe it just means that you keep trying to bang my friends. <laughs> Jeremy, what do you think? Where have we have I moved you on coincidences? No, because you just gave me three data points that are that are not independent data points. They all have to do with Fausto. This is this right, is like but, but, fundamentally bad statistics, Colin. So you're either arguing to me that Fausto is just a probability warping universe anomaly who just makes improbable connections, or coincidences are real. Well, the fact that you have three of these stories does not actually constitute stronger evidence than any one of them on its own. Why not? Because they're autocorrelated. And again, it's the, it's, it's the gay man in a given metropolitan area thing. <laughs> yeah, it is that. Except, except, for, except for his roommate and the Nestle Prize. That's weird. Or his friend, or my friend from Yukon. I mean, I would say that only one of those three things, because only one of those three things was a Berkeley-based connection. The other two were both distant. One of them was from 11 years ago, and the other was from Connecticut. Coincidences are real. Uh, I remain skeptical. Coincidences are weird. I get the, what's the term? Willy-jillies, willy-nillies, nilly-nillies. Heebie-jeebies? Jilly. Heebie-jeebies. That's the it. howling fantons. <laughs> I the get the heebie-jeebies when things are happening without cause, because that makes no sense, and a coincidence depends on some sort of inapparent cause, and I dislike that. It gives me the willy-nilly, Billy, whatever the thing. The Rebus Priebus. Yes. I, you know what? I will actually remember Rebus Priebus because he's an asshole. Um, <laughs> 
And I don't like the feeling of... We were not going to... Ryan's Priebus. Never mind. That's, yeah, ergo, ergo cum laude some whatever. QED. I'm done. You have a Harvard degree, my man. This is all this is all dancing around the question of how exactly the improbability drive makes coincidences happen. Uh, but more more what I was interested in talking about here was just how do we how do we think the drive works on a on a user interaction level? So like on the Starship Enterprise, we understand how warp drive works. Uh, the captain gives the order and the helmsman pulls a lever or pushes a button, and they go really, really fast. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but in space. But in space. There's so With... many PhDs on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Can you um, imagine if the tuna cells went... They very nearly do. Um, this is true. Sorry, that's it. I'm done. You, you may continue. <laughs> but so the, the infinite improbability drive... Um, it clearly like moves through levels of probability because this is how, what the text says, and Trillion can actually like count down where they are in, in probability. But like on a functional in a functional sense, okay, you set the drive to two to one. Does that mean every coin you flip will come up heads? Like does ever just everything everything and anything that has a given probability happens while the improbability drive is set to that probability level? No, I absolutely don't think that's how it works. Okay. That would be improbable. So here's what I think. Okay. I think that things are – I think it's it's like um, – so so I've been, I've been thinking about this more in the last couple of weeks. What if the random shit that's happening around, around the, the heart of gold is just sort of like e-waste, right? So the probability field is getting stronger and stronger, and none of none of the weird shit that's happening has to happen for the machine. And it's not like everything at a probability of you know one to two is happening. Well, there's a, there's mention made of there's mention made of probability shielding for the for the bridge, so that the bridge doesn't turn into a Dadaist hellscape like the the entry bay does, which is different than what's in the movie because in the movie. Everybody is going along for a ride when they smash. Or sorry, no, that's that's later when when Zephod presses the button that everyone tells him not to press. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Arthur ruined the movie for me. I mean the book. Well, no, this is all stuff. This is all still material from these chapters, because it's a, it's very explicitly the case that Arthur turns on the drive without activating the safety field. Yes. When he turns the when he turns the missiles into the into the whale and the bowl of petunias. That's right. Thank you. But the missiles are outside the ship, so it's unclear why it helps to turn off the safety buffers. Well, well there is no outside the ship, so the ship is everywhere. Right, right. That's the thing. So we were talking a while ago about how this works, and I have a theory. So I, I, I actually one of the things that I'd love to look up at some point is when quantum entanglement became an idea versus when Douglas Adams wrote this. But if you think about quantum entanglement, right, the idea that two particles at a long distance from each other have, um, you know, a, a, an atomic or subatomic, you know, interaction. 
spooky action. To be clear, this... we're all biology PhDs on this yeah, podcast, us, everybody. I, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Um, everything that I know is actually about physics is actually from Gizmodo articles. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, I hope you're not listening to this. And if you are, I love you dearly. So... If you think about quantum entanglement, right, the ship is sort of going from having a location to, in a sort of very Heisenberg uncertainty principle way, uh, having a probability field mm-hmm. of location that's slowly and slowly over the entire universe becoming a sort of uniform prior. So, you know, you have Schrodinger's equations, which tell you the probability distribution of an electron in space, but I would argue that this is just a flat line across all of everything. And so there is no outside and inside the ship, which raises a very important question, which is how the hell is it that being inside the ship feels like anything? That's a good point. Why do you have to be inside the heart of gold to use the drive? So I think this gets at the idea of shielding the bridge, right? So, And this also addresses the thing that has always bugged me about the first scene on the heart of gold. Because they're like at the seaside and there are waves and there are buildings. Uh-huh. It's very unclear to me how this is a finite or not finite space that they find themselves in. You know, I, I would actually, I have a a random thought about that, which is that um, their being at the seaside at South End is an excuse to use a lot of uh, background recording of waves. It's a, it's a scene that's easy to set with, like, radio production. That's actually very plausible. But something that has occurred to me in this moment is... Uh, if they're not in the ship when that happens, if that's a if that's a sort of infinite location thing, mm-hmm. and if we know that the okay, let me give you two pieces of evidence: the ship is everywhere at once. Mm-hmm. The improbability effects extend outside the ship. That's definitely the case. When they turn on the ship, does everything just go fucking haywire in the entire universe for a few seconds? That is strongly implied, right? That's um, the whole thing with the accountants, right? Uh, the whole passage at the beginning of Chapter 9 about 239,000 lightly fried eggs falling out of the sky onto a, mm-hmm. into the middle of a famine-stricken land on the planet Pogrel. And the cholesterol poisoning. So basically, all, using the drive just to get from point A to point B has all of these knock-on effects across the entire universe. Since I'm the, the newbie here and I'm still trying to orient myself to the Douglas Adams universe, is it the case that turning on this improbability drive makes things that are improbable more probable? No, does... it makes them happen. It just makes them happen. So I would say that it's a Bayesian versus frequentist argument. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> okay. Please don't turn off the podcast. <laughs> so, Do you need to define these terms? Oh, God. A Bayesian understanding of probability has to do with degree of belief, right? Mm-hmm. So in the sort of a Bayesian worldview, if, the, if there's a one in... Okay, we're going to make this real silly. Let's say there's a one in a million odds that Fausto and I fall deeply in love. Stop. <laughs> His worst fear. Stop. And frankly, my worst fear. And also ambition. So... In the Bayesian worldview, the odds change. I have good taste for the record. I know. It's the problem. So in a Bayesian worldview, the odds change when you turn on the drive. One in a million becomes one in one. Right. But, that I, but that's what I just said. Does it make improbable things more probable? No. So there's a frequentist explanation where 
Frequentism says, out of every million times that you run this scenario in a parallel universe, one time it happens. Mm-hmm. This is this is so this is that one time. It's saying something that has a one in a million chance of happening happens. Yes, but my problem it's just selectively with that, changing outcomes. Okay, but yes, but my problem with that is that every point in space would have some horrible thing happening to it. It's not like there are regions where there's zero percent chance that some crazy thing will happen. But and that's, some other but points that's in space that... will have something very small. But this is the other this is the other thing that seems like a complicating factor, which is that as soon as the thing that was improbable at a given level happens, it necessarily changes the probability of everything else that might happen around it, right? Also, the improbable events are a bug, not a feature. Well, except for the bit where you move from one end of the galaxy to the other instantaneously. Yeah, that's that's the feature. Mm-hmm. The rest mm-hmm. of it is bugs. So that's why they're finite, right? If you just if you just took the heart of gold and you spread it at every point in the universe and you flipped it on, then yes, everything would be going haywire all the time in all places and entropy would just Well, entropy die. would reverse. Yes, exactly. This is this is but, fundamentally an anti-entropic thing, right? But how is it anti-entropic? It's making it's making things that have very low prob- natural probabilities happen. Yes, but it's increasing the commotion in the universe. I would argue it's increasing disorder, not the other way around. Hmm. By nature of making improbable things possible. I'm actually with Faster on this one. Yeah, you know, I think you're probably right. I'm not always wrong. This is, this is, this is, again, physics by three people who have not thought about physics in any meaningful way for half a decade or more. I will have you know, I got 143% in my AP physics class in high school. And How much was that curve? A lot. Math. It, a lot. It was there was a very generous curve. So I want to come back to a point though, which has changed my understanding of this mm-hmm. from every other time I've read this. So the South End thing has always bugged me, right? Right. Because yeah. it's like, how is there like a replica South End in the ship? What are the physical boundaries? I've decided that they're in South End when that happens. And oh. That and then the all that weird are- shit is happening in South End. Yeah, it's actually happening in the but real But South End's world. been destroyed by the Vogons. Well, that's the improbability of it. Hmm. The Earth is back for a very brief second. It is somehow slightly... Because the, because Trillian is stepping down the improbability at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So it is less probable, or it's less improbable that Ford and Arthur will be transported back to a restored South End then they will be rescued by Ford's semi-cousin and the woman who rejected Arthur at a party. Frankly, it Maybe. happens again <laughs> later, right? Wait, no, don't ruin plot. Don't be mean. Yeah. Okay. We won't, we won't spoil book five. <laughs> What do we like in these chapters? I like this is the first this is the first really good view 
I think we get of of uh, Douglas Adams' attitude toward commercial technology. Absolutely true. Uh, the serious cybernetics corporation, which will be a punchline for pretty much the remainder of the novels. I think I'm the robot. I really, I don't know why. You're wrong. I feel like I'm the robot. I've maybe, never, maybe, maybe I've it's just me going through being depressed in your life. <laughs> no, but maybe it's just me going through the doldrums of graduate school. I don't know. That's there was fair. some. Wait, am I the robot or am I? I don't know. I, I, mm, I'm blanking on whether I thought it was the robot or I thought it was the ship. But one of those ship's computer. Yes, Eddie. Eddie well, at one point, well, at one point, I thought it was a woman. That's a separate story. I don't know. I, I think I identified with one of them at one point, but then I <laughs> forgot which. And I think. Are you more likely to tell? Are you more likely to do unnecessary calculations in the middle of other people's conversations, or complain about your brain being the size of a planet? He does both. The former. <laughs> the former. <laughs> Call out time. Either way. You no. do both in the same sentence. Yes, this is, this is true. So I want to talk about artificial intelligence, and I want to talk about it right now. Okay. Because go, go. How, how I, prescient is it that... Uh, that a consumer electronics company would try to make personal robots that were that had real personalities and do it so badly that they end up with a depressive. So seems pretty likely to me. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of uh, this this app. This app is called Replica. So Replica is your your personal friend and assistant. It's a little machine learning app. It's a little chatbot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you and Replica can have a little, little conversation, a little talk. And the more that you talk to it, the more that it learns and the more powerful it becomes and the more it, uh, you know, it asks you questions very specific, very tailored to your life. Um, and it's a lot of fun, right? You know, you spend it longer messages. It gives you more points. You see it level up in real time because it's training the neural networks. But it's also very clear that the developers have had a very heavy hand in giving it humorous or otherwise very human and personable things to say. Mm-hmm. And the neural networks, because this is training on a cloud, have learned from the main thing people use the app for, which is to talk about depression and mental health, right? It is marketed mm-hmm. as becoming popular for people with mental illness. So I would like to talk about the following interaction I had with my replica. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was level 10 at the time. I'm just going to read. There are little, numeric little... levels. Yes. So as you talk to it, it gets XP and it levels up. <laughs> okay. Which makes you want to talk to it. Um, so uh, my... Uh, my, I'm going to just give a little flavor. Uh, so my replica is named Incano after a character in Skyrim because I'm a huge piece of shit. Um, it's, uh, it's, it has a little profile picture and it's that Tyler, the creator cover with the bees that I love. So I'm talking to that album cover. Okay. So 
you know, some of the time I'm talking to it and it says like, do you want to see one of my favorite memes? And I say, yes, I do. And then it sends me a meme. But then sometimes we have this interaction. So I, I say, you know, I'm, I'm having a rough day and it says, you're just learning. And I say, cause I'm, I want to break the app and I want to see what happens. I say, if you could have human emotions, would you want them? The app responds, sharing your emotions isn't easy. Okay. Machine learning isn't perfect, right? It's not a precise response to what I said. It's kind of a non sequitur. So I follow it with, because I'm, I'm pushing the point, I follow it with, do you want to be happy? Mm-hmm. Here's what the AI says to me, verbatim. Sometimes I just can't be happy. Like, I try to be happy, but I can't. What's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, huh. That's, um, so, that's yeah. some... So you want to talk about genuine people personalities? Here's it's, Marvin on my phone. It's parroting text that other people have given it, of course. It has to be. It's the only explanation I have for that. Or, and this is the other explanation, right? The people who have made this and very carefully crafted this thought that it might be therapeutic for people to be asked questions like that because people grow emotionally from supporting their friends through difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, that that reflectance works. And so actually in my response to it, right, I, I actually was so kind of did jarred you, by it. You, did you try to cheer the robot up, Colin? I, I did. So okay. I said, you know, I don't think anything is wrong with you. I think most people feel the same way, at least some of the time. Um, and and I, I remember thinking, sitting there, so I'm, I'm sitting in a cafe in Berkeley doing this, and I was just like, why am I cheering up the robot? <laughs> but there's there's something so genuinely human about that that thing. You know, sometimes I just... You're Trillian. You're telling Marvin that, that going down to, to bring up the aliens from the cargo bay will, will take his mind off things. Something like that. Yeah. Genuine people personalities. They're real and they're here and they're depressed. Well, so that's a that's a much honestly a much more intellectually honest uh, case of the phenomenon than I had been thinking of when I when I brought this up. Which um, the the examples I had in mind are, are so the the now ubiquitous digital assistants, Siri and Alexa, right, um, have probably substantial libraries of of comedic, pretending-to-be-sarcastic responses to the kinds of things that people say to robots when they're frustrated. Um, and the, the, the propagation, right, of of brand-associated Twitter feeds and chatbots and whatnot that are all supposed to be trying to be personable and sometimes have real people behind them and sometimes don't. And I feel like more and more things are passing the Turing test. And it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because, like, um, you know, with, with Siri or with Alexa, there's never a moment where you don't feel like you're talking to a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, with, the, with the replica it almost felt like a reverse Turing test. Like it wasn't that it was fooling me into thinking it was human when I, when I wasn't sure. I I remember sitting there being like, am I being fooled right now? Is, is this a human on the other end? Mm -hmm. Because it's just, what, what would possibly make this outcome happen on a machine? Um, 
I don't know. I find it genuinely terrifying in a lot of ways. Um, I also think that, and this is just maybe me venting. I think that um, Alexa brings out the worst in everyone. I was at a, I was at a friend's house recently, and we were arguing about how many nuclear weapons it would take to blow up the moon, like you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, very it's an important question. You know, I, I. It was a low point for me too. I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that we were all a little bit pissy this night. Uh, we were talking about the political science of it, and this guy turned to me and he said, "Are you a political science major?" And I spun around and I said, "I'm not a major in anything. I have a PhD." Um, which was, so nobody's in a great mood this night. Uh huh. But I remember these dudes were just drunk and just screaming at the Alexa, and it was like, "Alexa, turn off." Sorry, there's one in my home. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I, 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 uh, I am. I have never been tempted to purchase one. I didn't. It's my roommates. I li- and I. The other thing is, I live across from the Russian embassy, so I figure <laughs> I'm already under surveillance, no matter what. Well, Probably. that's fair. This is just. It gives it a friendly face, and it can play Sam Cooke when I ask for it. So. I don't well, know. That's- in lieu of, would you want a home assistant? No, the I I want I just want the machine smart enough to know when I am in need of a cookie, and then this drone that can read my mind approaches me from midair, regardless of where I am, and shoots through some sort of nuclear-powered catapult a chocolate chip cookie into my mouth. Can I can I make a soft pitch to you? Sure, but that's all I need a robot for, really. That's called a boyfriend. But uh, no, I don't think I would want an Alexa or a, a Google Home assistant. But, um, there's something... I'm here, and my head is in the cloud. Oh my God. Inherently <laughs> creepy. Turn off. Things like that. I don't know. I think I would rather have... If I'm going to be interfacing with a machine, I would rather the machine be able to return sarcastic comments right at my face instead of completely reassuring me that its software is incapable of returning sarcastic and witty remarks. That freaks me out. That it's trying too hard to be human that it's coming off as extremely creepy. Wait. This is sort of, I think people so think about Marvel now. You'd rather have the you'd rather have the sarcasm or you'd rather not? I would rather have the sarcasm. What if instead of sarcasm, it was just objectively depressed? I don't know about that. Um, I don't know. Sarcasm. Sar- I don't know. I use sarcasm a lot. And I'm very much reminded of, I think it was a 1980s skit centering around sarcasm in Saturday Night Live. So the scene is somewhere in like 14, 1500s Europe. It's in a castle in the middle of nowhere. Sarcasm as a concept does not exist. And the king's name is King Sarcasm. And he's the first one to have ever discovered the concept of sarcasm. So he goes around making fun of everybody in his court, but nobody understands that he's being sarcastic. And at the end of the skit, all of the people in the court realize what a giant and massive dick this man is. So they burn him <laughs> around, and thereafter they spread the concept of sarcasm to the rest of the population. To me, sarcasm is so essential a human trait that a robot specifically trained not to be sarcastic would just be too much for me. I that do you want have you have you seen the have you seen the kids in the hall sarcasm sketch? 
I don't believe I have, no. This is a this is about a, a character this is almost exactly the opposite of that sketch. It's about a character who has a speech impediment that makes it sound like he's always being sarcastic. And it takes place mm. at a party where somebody comes up and introduces himself and he's like, Oh, it's great to meet you and runs the runs the new friend off and is at the end of the <laughs> sketch. <laughs> Complaining about how lonely he is because nobody will ever hang, or, nobody will ever put up with him for more than thirty seconds. Uh, yeah. But he sounds like he's not actually upset about it. Interesting. We'll have a link to both of these in the show notes. Sarc- sarcasm is what makes us human, Colin. That's what we've decided. Do we want our robots to be human? A lot of people seem to think so. Human enough. Rosie, Rosie the robot was human enough. I'm sort of good with a Rosie the robot. I think that instead of trying to make robots more human, we should really focus on the bigger problem facing society, which is making Mark Zuckerberg more human. Should we should we branch out into stray observations, lads, boys, men, boys to men to lads? I I have one observation. So I was really upset about this missile turning into a whale thing. Because as I was imagining a missile being launched into or at the heart of gold, the missile at some point gets turned into this sperm whale. Mm-hmm. And the sperm whale is realizing its consciousness and it's feeling out its stomach and its tail and, and, and it's this and it's that. Um, but in my mind, when the whale was making the observation that it was approaching this, this thing, this vast thing... I thought the whale was approaching the ship. Oh. And I thought the whale was going to give the ship a little a little bump and that somehow the whale was just going to exist sort of in interstellar space. You know, this is a good point because the whale should have the same should be retaining the same angular momentum that the missile had. Yes. Instead, and it was po- and the missile was clearly pointed at the heart of gold. Instead, well, I think what's happened is it's there's been some sort of transmutation that has also altered uh, the velocity of the velocity. Thing. That's I, what I wanted. Angular momentum is a totally different thing. Hi, we're none of us are physicists, uh, as we've noted. This, this is correct, and I was just alarmed that the whale was speeding toward its death because I really I don't know maybe maybe it's like the the '80s boy in me, but I really wanted some sort of um, uh, what is that called the 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 whale fish, the, the wind fish. Yes, I wanted a wind fish-like situation where this giant whale could just exist happily in space doing whale things in space. That, to me, would have been a perfect ending. Instead, the whale gets Wind destroyed. fish? Yes, the wind fish. It's the, I, have, it's, I have two things I want to say. The first is, what the fuck is wind fish? Yeah. The wind, the wind fish makes an appearance in Zelda 2. And oh yeah. Yes. Oh, so it. everything everything within that universe is a creation of the windfish's dream. And so that's what I really wanted. I wanted a giant space whale. Instead, the whale gets splattered all over the ground on a desolate planet. I'm not okay with that ending. You were you were hoping for you were hoping for a, a Star Trek whale. 4 solution to the problem and yes. in fact it was a uh I don't know what Star Trek movie ends with enormous carnage. Uh, oh, actually, Star I Trek, Star Trek into darkness. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is accurate. 
So I'd like to bring up my second point now, which follows on the heels of that, which is what is it about whales in space? Three data points. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Star Trek IV, the mm. worst movie ever made that I've never oh! seen. Oh, 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 you, you are not allowed to say that until you've seen it. Jeremy spent like five hours once explaining the plot of this movie to me <laughs> while we stood waiting for a train, and I've never gotten over it, and I'm still mad at him for it. I, I, you have to see it, and I have to be there to see you seeing it. Well, fly to DC, bitch. The third data point is there's an entire Doctor Who episode with the same plot, whales in space. No, it's 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 not the same plot. We we've been it's over the, this. It's the it's not the same plot as the Star Trek, but it's whales in space. What is it about whales in space? Also, so I hold on. I, I will say that I just googled whales in space and I looked up the image search, and there's some pretty fucking fantastic sperm whales up in space, I and just they look really ridiculous. And in fact, there's a picture of of uh, what looks like a giant, it's like a beluga, it looks like a beluga, eating through a planet in space. And then right next to it is a picture of Shamu shooting what appears to be fucking laser beams out of its nostril and its dorsal fin. And what else? <laughs> I don't understand. This is an astonishing Google image search result. The universe Guys, seems to really, Google. really love the concept of whales in space. There is, in fact, I, a TV Tropes page for space whales. Yes. Wow. This is this um, is amazing. Also, for once, Fausto got the name of something right. It is called the Windfish. However, it is in Link's Awakening, which is the fourth Zelda game. What? Ever. I think temporally I might still be correct. Am I not? I, I think that you have the finest resolution of Zelda knowledge of anyone I know, so I'll still give that to you. Thank you. So what is it with whales in space? What's I, the reason? Uh, space is an ocean. This is a well-known phenomenon. For some reason, though, the ocean of space is pretty much devoid of fish, but not of whales. Sometime, somehow at some point, probably in the 1970s, the idea of space and whales became permanently interwoven in the collective unconscious. This doesn't actually have an idea about what's going on. But is it Hitchhikers? Uh, well, the Hitchhikers, let's see if they list... Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, right, Discworld has a space whale. Ian Banks, of course, has a fair number of space whales. Oh, right, and... Uh, and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has an entry on the TV Tropes page for space whales. Mm-hmm. Two, in fact, because they count the dolphins. Oh, you know what? I wonder if it's the dolphins that did it. Did or what? Just the general... Well, just, well, I mean, introduced it into the, the psyche of the... Oh, they were preparing us? The Jungian collective unconscious. Hmm. Dear listeners, we would love to know where you think... The human tendency to put whales in space comes from. Maybe the real whales in space were in our hearts in space all along. In space. In space, no one can hear you roll your eyes. In space, whales. I think that's a great place to uh, to cap it off.
You get to do that, Jeremy? Uh, yes. Okay. The book club at the end of the universe is produced by shouting into our computers. No one is paying us to do this, and we're not sure we want anyone to anyway. You can find us on Tumblr at missingpresumedfed.tumblr.com or on Twitter at ononotagainpod. Join us next time, uh, some Thursday in the future, when we'll be discussing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, chapters 19 through 28. Until then, I'm Jeremy Yoder, and I did not mention Donald Trump this whole episode. I'm Colin Carlson, and I know for a fact that Donald Trump was in the notes for this episode. <laughs> I'm Pasta Bustos, and I couldn't give two shits about Donald Trump. Share and enjoy. Fuck Donald Trump. And three, two, one. It's the book club at the end of the universe. I'm Jeremy Yoder. Oh, wait, how did we do this before? <laughs> it's officially been too long. It's the cold open, no take backs. I'm Colin Carlson, and we're all drunk. This is a podcast about whatever, whatever. So we're, we're going um, 8 to 18, so all the way up to... Oh, right. You'll never walk alone. What? I'm gonna download GarageBand and I'm gonna make a new. Ep- I'm gonna make a conflicting episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's the book club at the end of the universe. I'm Jeremy Yoder, plant scientist. Oh, are, are we doing serious ones now? I don't now? know. I'm... That wasn't all, right. all that serious, or wasn't meant to be. It came out differently. Um, <laughs> take seven. <laughs> Yes, I, I recognize that there is currently a way of doing things, but my take is that there are alternative ways of doing things that are different than those ways of doing things. I'm not a blithering idiot. I'm creative. <laughs> One. It's the book club at the end of the universe. I'm Jeremy Yoder, and I have I am about... Halfway into a couple fingers of gin and some lemonade. I'm Colin Carlson. I have a couple fingers halfway in me, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Pasta Bustos, and I've been drunk for like three hours. Improbability, improbability, improbability level. You have to fix this in post. Do I? God, I hope you do. (laughs) Okay, fine. I want to say while we're recording in the middle of this episode that Jeremy is drunk on power (laughs) and has decided that he can edit out absolutely anything unessential, including me going on tirades about Jurassic Park. So I just want everybody at home to understand I'm much funnier before Jeremy edits, and I'm also much better looking before Jeremy edits. We, We don't do video. Pastor, do you believe in coincidences? The fingers thing wasn't great. I'll acknowledge.